0: Welcome to another episode of the NAVS Effect. Uh, it's our first episode in a while. It's been a few months since we last released an episode on this podcast, but we're back. Finally, I'm joined by Ed today, one of my producers. What's, what's up, Ed? Kamusta naman Christmas?
1: What's up, NAVS? Okay. Um, busy, busy as usual. But it, it's it's nice to have some downtime, right? How was okay. your Christmas?
0: See, because uh, Ed, you you all well know that I actually got married a few weeks ago and I also moved into a new apartment, new place. So you know it it's it was a little challenging eh? Um, because you know you're trying to balance everything, wedding planning, finding a new apartment, and then there's so much going on in the world of sports and NFTs, right? And Ed, you and I are both in that kind of industry where it's a little wild. But it's good, you know. The wedding's done. Went on a mini honeymoon of sorts. Uh honeymoon part one, we like to say. <laughs> and finally getting some downtime also. It's really wild for Christmas. You know, I'm starting to realize parents sometimes there's no time to breathe. There's so many events to get to, so many things to do. I was even trying to like work out and all of that, but to no avail. Uh India consistent in time for the wedding, unfortunately. <laughs> Just with... but I was sleeping like four or five hours a night okay i know i sound like a diva right now pero, you know the workload everything but it was a great success i i'd like to share that uh, of course ed i would have loved to have you and ron ron is our other producer on this podcast shout out to ron i would have loved to have you guys there at the wedding but you know because of covid we were told there were very limited uh we were we had very limited guesting capacity so you know we have to tell the family and all of that. But we sent you guys the link on Zoom. Hope you guys got to catch that. And yeah, uh, getting adjusted to married life. It's, uh, so far for me, it's like uh, you can give me advice on this because you've been married a while, you have kids. But so far, it's like having a college doormate almost. If that makes any <laughs> sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. At first, it, it does. It does. Like you mentioned earlier, it was four four to five hours of sleep. Yeah. you you better get used to that because that's what will happen when you have kids soon uh-huh. okay so uh me personally I have like four 4.5 hours on oh man for, for the alarm okay how much it, how much coffee
0: do you drink a day
1: well I try to limit it to one only but right. sometimes like like when I got into nfts I I need like maybe two um, <laughs> like from the start, I have one one cup of coffee. but there are days like I need to put two uh, I need to drink two cups like in one sitting in pero it, it's fine. It, it's fine, it's enjoyable. it's 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 like a grind, but right. it, it's it's fulfilling, really.
0: sometimes, you know sometimes I feel like all the money I spend on coffee outside, I wish I wouldn't spend it and invest <laughs> it in like Ethereum or something. It sounds, it sounds smarter for the future but you know I'm not sure if this happens to every couple but like after uh, my wife and I got married um, by the way Indian weddings aren't like normal weddings just want to point did. that out very important normal Christian weddings are like one night and we have like three nights of events so we have to be like out of town by the way we did we did have our wedding in Boracay but we tested everybody before the wedding tested them in days one and three also so, you know, we had like a little bubble setup. Thank you to Crimson Resort for and Barackai for helping us plan everything accordingly. They were amazing. Um but yeah, parang, there we have three nights. So it's thrice the planning and the energy required and whatnot. But yeah, where was I? Anyway, after I get we got married, uh, my wife and I all the questions are asked mostly for my parents actually like you know when are you gonna have a kid when are we gonna have a grandkid Deba? and i feel like yeah. it happens to so many wedded couples right <laughs> after they get married and i'm just like five years and then they do this whole like guilty face where they're like you're gonna wait for us to get so old before we see your grandkid and I'm like I'm sorry okay but i can't i can't not just yet (laughs) like i don't even want to get a pet right now because i feel like it's so much responsibility so i'm still trying to enjoy that and you know we we still have to watch as many NBA games as possible right true true. i'm sure you can attest to the fact that it's hard holding a baby in one hand and watching a game you know holding the remote on the other
1: yeah and uh typing on the keyboard if you're (laughs) if you're monitoring something (laughs) <laughs> like watching, watching something, you're, you're minting something and you need to wake up at a certain time. Oh
0: man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. And you know, what's interesting. I, I guess some people might call it me privileged for this maybe, but so my whole life I've grown up with maids at the house. Right. Um, And I, I moved into my new apartment a month before I got married, just because I wanted to live alone for a little bit before I got married. And I purposely, intentionally decided not to get a maid for our apartment. Even after my wife has moved in, we both decided to do that. And I don't know, I guess we're like um, other people It would be like, yeah, you're not living with a maid. So what? A lot of us don't live with a maid, right? Which I totally get and totally understand. But even if I'm like, so I'm 29 now and I'm doing this uh, no maid lifestyle for the first time in a while. And I'm finding like enjoyment in doing simple things, almost like washing dishes and like cooking food. But you know why I enjoy it also? It's because it takes my attention away from my phone, right? I feel like sometimes when we're busy with our phones so much, even if we don't have something we do, we find something we end up doing because we're on our phone scrolling mindlessly sometimes. So kind of like putting the phone down and doing house chores brings you back to earth a little bit.
1: What's your average, like, on, on your screen time?
0: On my phone? Yeah.
1: Um, well, actually, I had a screen
0: time notification earlier, so it's about three and a half hours per day. Oh, uh-huh. okay. And then, like, 400-something notifications, which, <laughs> yeah, which is a lot. I might need to fix that. Uh, but that's life when you kind of work in media, right? Um, yeah. and But yeah, I think I've gotten better though since uh, I moved out and got my own place of putting my phone down because, you know, when you're sweeping the floor and you have to do house chores and housework, you kind of uh, use your phone less, but it's turned out for the best. Anyway, Ed, that was fun to catch up. This episode we have coming up is with Joe Verai, my co-NBA writer for Rappler Sports. He is also a writer for Golden State's SB Nation page, Golden State of Mind. And Joe and I basically reacted to today's NBA Christmas games, which turned out to be quite interesting and exciting, even if there were so many injuries, so many players out due to COVID. That whole situation is a mess right now, but got some really solid basketball. Ed, did you get to catch any of the games today?
1: Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, I think I, I watched the last few seconds of the Lakers in the Brooklyn Brooklyn game. And uh, sorry Laker fans. <laughs> <laughs> Another L, right? How how was how many was that? Five already? Five straight, yeah. Five Tough straight, times. yeah.
0: Tough times so for Lakers. struggling. Laker they're struggling. Uh, but you know Ed like myself, we like watching the Miami Heat. Um and today news came out Kyle Lowry's health and safety protocols. The yeah. day after it's announced that Dwayne Deadmond would be out for one to two weeks and Dwayne, who is actually the Miami Heat's backup center, was starting because Miami's original center, Bam Adebayo, injured his thumb a few weeks ago and he's still out, expected to be out to like Mid Jan to Feb. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy might finally come back tomorrow. He's, it feels like forever since he's last played, right? And DJ Tucker. <laughs>
1: yeah. But yeah,
0: and all the This, I Honestly, Ed, I don't know how they're 20 and 13. It's insane. They're seven games above 500. And actually, the biggest reason, aside from the fact that they have a, a fantastic head coach, was I thought because Kyle Lowry was playing amazing. But mm-hmm. now he goes to health and safety protocol. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Heat do. You know, they have a soft schedule kind of coming up. They play some teams that aren't exactly elite. But we'll see. Of course, when you don't have your best players, it's different. But yeah, Ed, we'll catch you on the flip side, everybody. This is the Nabs Effect. Okay, Joe. So we just had our annual NBA Christmas Day games that as Hoop Drunkies in the Philippines know it's both a very stressful and a very exciting time. Stressful for time zone reasons, uh, but exciting because we love our Christmas Day games. So before we get into that, how was your Christmas, man? What did you do? Well, as usual, we ate a lot. You know, that's what Christmas is for,
2: just getting fat and, you know, getting getting a bit inebriated, I would say. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's just celebrating with family And watching basketball, great day of basketball today. I think, I don't know, maybe my memory is not as sharp, but it's been one of the more
0: great Christmas NBA days in recent memory. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I have an interesting point about that too, Um, considering like the expectations, like me, myself, I had for the, the games this Christmas. You know, I felt it was a bit of a downer with all the COVID. Uh, cases, but it turned out to be pretty entertaining. But before that, I saw your tweet the other day about how Christmas and the holiday season here in the Philippines means uh, you kind of have to suffer through our family relatives uh, singing <laughs> with a karaoke. And uh, I, you know, my one of my observations, I think I've known this for years, but I really um, figured this out. First of all, by the way, there are just so many Christmas parties going on this time of the year. So uh, on Thursday night. Um, I had like a, an office party, um, my wife's office party, and then my office party, and then um, we had I don't had like a Christmas dinner with some friends, and I noticed like people just love lechon with beer so much. Like I have realized that Filipino men. Uh, would probably leave their wives for uh, yummy lechon and the other way around too, (laughs) probably. It's just, it's crazy, right? Like, I personally like lechon, but like, I'm so amazed how people are just so enamored by it, you know, here. Like, it's yummy, but it's not like, am I like being a little too weird here? What's your thoughts about the whole lechon and beer all night uh, tradition that we have?
2: Oh, well, uh, before that, congratulations on the wedding.
0: Thank you, buddy. We married
2: man um as for that beer and lechon um you know it's i like the chon, i do but it's not something i would eat all the time and i would rather have uh it's not like on my top of my list absolute must have yeah uh, eats and during christmas or any other special occasion i mean just think uh, of the cholesterol man <laughs> yeah and when you combine it with a beer like you know that's like oh it's like fast track to the hospital man yeah (laughs) but yeah i mean you know i do i do partake in lechon and beard but it's just that you know i think after i eat it i feel like i'm not gonna have any lechon until like next christmas or whatever you know because it's just too much it's too much for me i feel guilty and it's like i feel like i gain five pounds every time you know right
0: yeah i mean that that's totally true especially when you add the sauce into it because there's I mean, those, those Mang Tomas packets, like, pack a <laughs> bunch of calories. But then at the same time, too, when you're eating at the moment, you don't really care because it adds to the appeal. Cebu like, lechon, I out- man. Cebu oh. lechon doesn't need any sauce. Oh, yeah, because I had the spicy lechon from Zubuchon in the first Christmas party I attended to on Thursday, and that was just absolutely delicious. I mean, it was covered in, like, really unhealthy spicy oil, but at the same time, it was just so good. So, you know, when you eat something like that, you alternate, right? right? You have a Coke. Then you have a beer, maybe you have some water, then maybe you have a Coke again, change the palate and everything. But ultimately, it leads back to beer. <laughs> um, yeah, well, actually, again, thank you for the greeting. And yes, to those who don't know, or actually, they'll probably know when I, I finish my intro here. But yes, I did get married, and it was so interesting because this was my first year watching the nba christmas day games as a married guy too and obviously when you have a wife you have other responsibilities you have your own place now you have other things to do uh so it's not as seamless anymore it's just you know waking up loading twitter on your phone uh and opening the television and watching games you kind of alternate you know like quarter breaks maybe you wash a few dishes you know halftime maybe you cook some food make brew some coffee Third quarter, maybe you wake up your wife because she wants to watch only the fourth quarter and like if it's a close game. So uh, I'm not sure how far off you are from there, Joe. But just want to give you and our listeners a preview uh, for those who might be getting married (laughs) anytime. Does the (laughs) wife
2: like understand? Like, give you the space to like watch the games, or does she watch with you? Yeah, she she partakes too.
0: Well, so what's interesting is my wife worked in San Francisco before moving back to the Philippines. Oh, great! All fellow Bay Area. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So, so she studied in Boston, went to LA, worked in LA, then worked in San Fran. So she's, um, well, I kind of tr- transferred her to the Miami Heat side, so because I, I make her watch the Heat games, but she's also like a Warrior fan deep inside too. Uh, <laughs> so it's hard enjoys- to take the Warriors fan out of a Bay Area person exactly so, yeah. exactly yeah, and her biggest regret actually was not watching a warriors game live um which mm. i still tell her you should have done you know but she'd uh she'd probably reply with something like well you she missed the oracle me. years <laughs> she missed the oracle years that was yeah we we did get to watch one game at oracle it was a regular season game against the pelicans and i remember i was so mad because i paid like 350 bucks per ticket it was somewhere like mid arena And like literally 30 minutes after we buy the tickets, someone like there's an announcement, Kevin Durant isn't playing. And, you know, and at that moment, you're just like, yeah, I spent 700 uh, U.S. dollars, which for us comes out to about 35,000 pesos, give or take. Right. So and this was when, you know, you're starting off with your career, not making a lot of money yet. So I'm just there like, (laughs) oh, come on, uh, please give me a close game. And it turned out to be a blowout because, of course, Um, but let's get to today's games. So. I'm not really going to go much into New York-Atlanta because the Hawks are a shell of themselves right now. Uh, This would have been a fun game had Trey Young played, uh, given the Trey Young-Madison Square Garden uh, WWE-style rivalry that's brewing there. Nice story, Kemba getting a triple-double. He's getting minutes again recently. I mean, we know that ultimately he's not a Tibbs guy, so uh, there might be a few moments there of Kemba, but we know that Tibbs trusts these guys. Tibbs has these Tibbs guys, right? um and the next one good for them pretty crappy season um then the next game so i get home yesterday at about like 12 i decide i'm gonna take a nap on the couch so when i wake up i can just open the tv and i i wake up just in time for halftime of the celtics and bucks and i see the celtics are up like 11 so i'm like okay you know Giannis probably just came back from covid uh, Bucks are probably struggling. I'm gonna like nap thirty more minutes. Wake up against the fourth quarter. It's an eleven point lead. I'm like, oh wow, the Celtics actually held on to this lead. I thought it would be close. So I said, let's figure, let's watch something. And my first thought that came to mind is, okay, the Bucks are playing George Hill and West Matthews crunch time minutes in Christmas Day game. And I guess in the long run, it's not so worrisome because. You have Dante DiVincenzo just coming back. You're going to get Grayson Allen. You're going to have all these guys. I mean, the Bucks are a deep roster, right? Um, but I was I thought that because of that, Boston would like pull through. And it turns out, West Matthews hits like two humongous threes. Although that final stretcher, I'm not sure if you've seen the highlights yet, but that final stretcher to me was like all Giannis. I thought it was absolutely amazing how this guy has been out with COVID. He comes back, doesn't miss a beat. He's dominant in the fourth quarter. He's dunking on everyone. He's getting offensive rebounds. He's going to the free throw line, making two free throws. He has a big block on Time Lord to like seal the game almost there. Um, I came away there with two thoughts, really. One is that for as good as Tatum and Brown are for the Celtics, they don't really have the makeup of a team that late in the game you can trust them. Because when you're the defense, you can almost kind of predict what shot the Celtics are going to get, right? And ultimately, if you want to be a good crunch time team, you need to be a team that can good get good shot quality late in games, either by ball movement or you have a star player. The Celtics have the star players, but the star players haven't performed well in the clutch, and they don't really have the ball movement necessary to, like, really execute down the stretch. And I came away with that thinking, and I it stays the same way, even after how I watched the Nets perform, was that the Bucs, to me, are just the, the class of the East still. You know, I think the Bucks, the Eastern Conference, it still runs through them, They know their identity more than anyone. When Drew, Chris, and Giannis are together, they're virtually unbeatable. And when you get the team healthy, the supporting cast back kind of complementing everything and everything is working well together, I think Bud has also improved with his late-game decisions sometimes. I think having a proper point guard like Drew there uh, helps. My concern is would be if they're depleted enough, they actually have to play Wes Matthews and George Hill, guys like that, extended minutes, buggy cousins. But, you know, when Portis is rolling, when Connington is there, everything is going great. They just look like not just the best. Okay, I wouldn't say best team in the NBA, but they could beat Phoenix or Golden State, who we'll talk about later. And at the same time, I think they're still the class of the Eastern Conference. How do you feel about it?
2: I agree. Uh, personally, I've been big on the Bucks the whole season. It's just that they have had some unfortunate breaks with COVID, with injuries and that sort of thing. And uh, I mentioned this on the South Boys podcast, but um, Angelo asked me, Angelo De Jesus asked me, uh, what is what is one player or a team that the league or the most or the rest of the league aren't talking about enough. And I gave him a player and a team and that's the Bucks and Giannis, uh, the Bucks and Giannis. Um, Giannis is doing MVP stuff again. You know, it's not he's not being talked enough as an MVP candidate. Uh, Staff is up there, KD is up there, but you know, Giannis is up there. Like he's a close third, maybe second, depending on depending on your point of view. You know, he's averaging what twenty seven, nearly twelve rebounds per game and six assists. Uh, you know, those numbers are those are MVP type numbers. You know, and the Bucks. Uh, I don't have the record with me. I don't have the record with me when all three of them are playing. But there's something along the lines of like, I think they've only lost like one or two games with all three healthy, Drew, Chris, and Giannis. So yeah, I mean, their identity is the most important thing that's carried over. You know, the Bucks have carried over their identity from their playoff run last season, and they've carried it over, carried it over to this one, to this season, and you know and the opposite side of the spectrum with uh the bucks is the celtics you know the celtics have had years of trying to find this culture this identity uh and what year is it with the partnership the Tatum brown partnership i don't know What's but it's been four a while. years in maybe yeah four yeah. years in and they still haven't found the perfect mix in terms of how to play them together uh when i like when I watch Celtics games, I see a lot of one-on-one. I see a lot of stagnation on offense. They try to run something. They try to run sets, but the problem with that is once those primary sets don't work, they don't have any secondary weak side actions or plan B's that are integrated in their sets. You know, they just, you know, uh, pass it to Tatum, pass it to Brown and see if they can make something out of nothing. And, it's a shame because it's just the, the Celtics have two of the premier wings, two way wings in the league and premier to uh, premier wings in the league are a rare commodity commodity. And to see the Celtics waste that is kind of a shame, you know, and I don't know if there has to be a change in terms of the infrastructure of the overall infrastructure. I mean, they did have a coaching change already, but I think. If this continues to happen, their you know their offense, they 20th in offense. Um, I think you'll have to trade away someone, and most likely it'll be Brown because I don't think mm-hmm. the Celtics will, you know, uh, listen to offers for Tatum. So I right. think they'll
0: need to do something drastic soon, or else it's just gonna be more of the same. Yeah, okay, to be fair to the Celtics, we should have mentioned that they didn't have Dennis Schroeder, who entered. This- Elton safety protocols today, and they did not have Al Horford. And Al well, Horford might not be the all-star he was during his prime. I think in that Celtic system with those guys who he's played with for years, he's still pretty, um, he can be pretty useful. Uh, and the Bucs were relatively complete, at least in terms of star power. But I agree with you. And while you were talking there, it got me curious. I searched um, the upcoming schedules for both teams. So right now, the Bucks are twenty-two and thirteen. That's good for third in the East. They're two games behind of Brooklyn, same as Chicago for the number one seed. Um, Brooklyn right now is in the Western Coast trip, right? I believe they they play, they played the Lakers today. They played the Clippers, although they might catch a break there with Paul George being out about a month, as reported by Woj. Uh, here's the Bucks' next couple of games, okay? At Orlando, at Orlando, which if you have those big three playing, that's a W and a W. I mean, and then they have New Orleans. New Orleans is playing better, but they should win that. They face Detroit, and then they face Toronto. So that's five winnable games, and you can make the case that by the time those five games are done, they're about 27-13 or 26-12, somewhere there. I think they'll... Eventually get to that number one seed is my point. They face a bit of a tough stretch after Toronto. They face Brooklyn, they face Charlotte two straight times on the road, then they face Golden State at home. That's going to be a very interesting matchup. Toronto at Atlanta, Memphis, Chicago. So they have a pretty soft stretch in their schedule to start January. That gets a little difficult. But I think this win. And I thought this was low-key a big win for them. Coming back in Christmas against the Celtics, getting that win, uh, getting Giannis to dominate in the fourth the way he did. Then they're still missing Brooke Lopez too. So I don't know how that's going to work out because Portis is playing so well. And I kind of like what how Portis is uh, meshing with Giannis there. So we'll see. It just adds more to their diversity though. I think they're going to take advantage of the soft stretch right here and go inside for the tough stretch starting with at Brooklyn um, on Saturday, January 8th. And kind of that's when they're going to be tested. Like, are the Bucs actually the premier team in the East? Can they dominate? Can they win against Brooklyn? Can they compete against Golden State? Can they sweep those two road games against Charlotte? Those are like the little tests during the regular season that kind of give us an idea of how good the team is. And I say that because I remember last year, Milwaukee had two straight home games late against Brooklyn. And this was when Brooklyn was rolling. Brooklyn wasn't complete. They were only playing with two of their three stars. But I thought the way the Bucs played late in those four quarters, kind of exercise some demons from past seasons and help them execute down the stretch like we would see against Brooklyn in the semifinals against other teams in the playoffs. So that's going to be interesting to see. Boston, on the other hand, they face at Minnesota. Minnesota's just depleted right now with all the guys out. Uh, They have the Clippers without George and they have a tough one against Phoenix and Orlando, San Antonio, two games against the Knicks, two games against the Pacers. You can kind of make a case that they should go with their talent alone with having Brown and Tatum. They should go about 5-2 or 6-2 in the stretch of next seven or eight games. The Brown-Tatum pairing, there are nights when it just looks absolutely excellent, right? You have two premier wing players who can play. Well, Tatum not so much as Brown, but two players who can play both ends of the floor. And when they get going on offense, um, they're just on the roll. It's tough to stop them. Do you think the current makeup of the Celtics is more about how the role players just don't necessarily fit Brown and Tatum? Or when you have two players who are really similar in terms of needing the ball, creating isolation style in Brown and Tatum, it's hard to find the role players to match those guys? Um, I think it's a bit of both.
2: But uh, if I had to lean one way, I would say the role players because the thing I noticed the most about the Celtics is that they really lack that play connector. Uh, Marcus Mart is probably the closest they have. And maybe in some stretches, Time Lord. Time Lord is a pretty underrated passer. And he, he can be a big man hub. But besides them, you don't really have anyone else who can be that connector on offense. Dennis Shooter is more of a scorer, score first guard and you and al horford maybe but he's not really that effective anymore in the, at this stage of his career as a as a as a play connector but um yeah i mean i believe that even if the fit between Tatum and Brown isn't on paper you say like ideal i think you can make that work given the right kind of role players surrounding them and the fact of the matter is, matter is the Celtics just haven't surrounded them with the white, right personnel, the right support. Uh, and I don't know if they can at this point, you know, so that's why they've, they're at this kind of a crossroads where they have to choose between keeping the both of them or trading one of them. Because if they, if they keep both of them, then you'll have, you have to do something around the margins. And the Celtics haven't done that. So, you know, everyone else is saying, oh, you should break it up. And I'm leaning towards breaking it up because I don't see anything the Celtics can do at this point to fix that. Uh, because, you know, their offense, is, their offense is shot at this point. And they can't find any solutions in terms of uh, tactics, in terms of X's and O's. So there's, something has to change. And at this point, it's one or the other.
0: Will you trade Jalen Brown for, okay, let's say... Um say I'm Brad Stevens and you're who's the GM right now at the Pacers. Is it still Pritchard? It's, I think yeah, it's a still Pritchard. Pritchard. Yeah. So let's say you're Pritchard and I'm Brad Stevens and, you know, talking about how our team sucked this season, right? You know maybe we've had a few beers. It's Christmas Eve. And I just tell you, Hey, um, what if we do Jalen Brown for the, for Sabonis? If you're Indiana, how do you react to that? And if you're Boston, how do you react to that? Because, I wouldn't say it's a yes, but I also wouldn't say it's a no. It's a, hmm, I might circle back to that eventually.
2: I actually think that's a pretty good fit for both teams. Uh, Especially since that uh, report where the Pacers were thinking of kind of, um, I don't know if they were kind of blowing it up completely, but they were trying to find... Uh, trade partners for Sabonis because Sabonis is reportedly frustrated with the situation there, but um, Sabonis does fill that uh, Celtics need for a, a playmaker, a connector, and also Sabonis can get his own shot. You know, he's a good bully ball, classic bully ball type of big. Uh, he's also he's not as good of a shooter mm. uh, as other versatile big men are, but he does have a bit of a bit of range, so he can make a shot every now and then uh he's also um he's also not as good defensively mm-hmm. but he has improved on defense this year uh he he's more of a hedge blitz type of big if you put him in drop of course he's not going to defend those drop coverages really well uh but yeah i mean i would if i were the celtics and the pacers i would say you know at least give those talks some consideration because uh, both of these teams have problems in terms of personnel, in terms of construction, and nothing else works and might as well just talk about the fit. Jalen Brown, I think when you put Jalen Brown in the Pacers, that uh, kind of clashes a bit with someone like Karis Levert, maybe.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so maybe you would have to find a way to make them fit or move Karis Levert as well if you're the, the Pacers. Sir. Yeah. Right.
0: For Marcus so, Smart, maybe. Maybe, yeah. I, I kind of like the thought of a Brogdon Smart backcourt. I think that I think that's good, actually. They, they, um,
2: smart doesn't really need to be the ass ball dominant as someone like Brogdon. He mm-hmm. can be a secondary ball handler and uh, playmaker. So I think that's a good fit.
0: Yeah, and he would give Indiana like some some attitude. You know what I mean? Like some yeah. kind of like spunk, because the Pacers just sometimes look dead in the water. The TJ Warren piece is interesting to to see where he might end up. Just for reference, Sabonis the season eighteen points a game, um, taking eleven point eight shots a game. Surprising, actually, he's down from fourteen point six field goal attempts last year to eleven point eight this season. He is also getting to the free throw line less, 5.3 to 4.7. And he's shooting a higher percent from the field of 58%. But points, rebounds, assists are pretty much down. Uh, It kind of gives an idea of how messy that situation in Indiana is. But that's a trade I think we're going to hear about. And I think it would be interesting for both teams, especially if, like you said, because if it's Levert, Sabonis, Tatum... And then you put Smart and Jalen Brown in Indiana and then try to maybe... The problem is how do you try to work things out with Miles Turner? do you have to trade him too? Um, and what do you do with TJ Warren? But both teams right now have a lot more questions and answers. I will tell you about two teams that seem like they have a lot of answers because this was stupendous basketball. The Warriors and the Suns today was absolutely amazing. I watched it from start to finish. I was so happy that I got to do so. Um... I came away impressed with both teams, to be honest with you, because I felt like the Warriors were having a lot of those games or all, all Porter Juniors just taking over Christmas. Um, Bielice is hitting, like, long-range shots, making floaters in the paint. Gary Payton is making three-pointers. So even if the Warriors were missing guys like Poole, like Wiggins, like uh, Clay, obviously, I felt like it ended up being a blessing in disguise, at least for this game, because the other guys stepped up when it was needed out of them. Uh, I thought Looney did his best. I thought Draymond was Draymond in his ways, including the technical foul on Christmas because, of course. Um, But I also thought the Suns were good. One guy I wasn't really... I was looking for was Devin Booker. I thought he disappeared there a bit in the second half. I thought the Warriors kind of faced him out off-ball a bit, forced the other guys to beat them more. Um, I thought, though, Bridges looked good. I thought Aiton had some nice moments. I felt like they should have gotten the ball to him more. CP was CP. Cam Johnson, you know Cam Johnson playing like Cam Johnson from last year again is pretty good. Ultimately, I thought Phoenix didn't play bad. I thought they were good, maybe not great, but they were good, but the Warriors today were just excellent and performances like that is exactly why I think Steph is Steph is my MVP right now. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that too. There was a point in the game early, I think the Warriors were up 2 or it was the Phoenix that was up by 2, but then I was looking at the stat and Steph was actually a plus Plus six, somewhere around there. Yeah, plus six or plus eight. And so every time he was in the court, Phoenix just didn't have an answer for him on Christmas Day. Finally exercised some of those demons. Um, What reminded me about this game was those old school Mavs uh, Spurs games from like 2006, 2007, where you know these are the two best teams in the NBA, right? These are the two teams with two premier players in Duncan and Dirk. And you've got a great supporting cat surrounding surrounding both of them. And you just know, even if these two teams meet in the Western Finals, it will actually be the NBA Finals. And that's what I came away thinking earlier. Of course, seeing Milwaukee play well again might spoil that party. But right now, Phoenix and Golden State are the two best teams in the NBA. And their game earlier just proved it. Because I tweeted this out too. Going from Phoenix-Golden State to going to Lakers-Brooklyn was not a seamless transition. It was not at all. What were your main takeaways? Because I know you were covering this game for um, Warrior State of Mind, and by the way, I know you have an article coming out too. So, guys, check out Joe's work.
2: Oh, yeah, I mean, um, we this was a Christmas game that did not disappoint. You know, the coming into the game when you had all these COVID protocols, like players unavailable, it suddenly became Steph versus CP Warriors versus Suns. That was the marquee matchup, right, and they 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 have Christmas games like penciled in before the season. And people back then were like looking at this Warriors-Suns matchup and they were kind of looking at it like, eh, really? Like, I don't feel it. Because they didn't know back then that the Warriors were going to be this good. But now that the Warriors and the Suns are the top one, top two teams in the league, it suddenly became the matchup to see. And it's quite curious because you have the Suns and the Warriors face each other three times they're Pacific Division uh, rivals, so they face each other four times this year, but they, three of those four games were in the calendar month of of November, December, I think. So they only have one more matchup to go this regular season. I think that's somewhere like March or April. So we're not gonna see another Warriors-Suns matchup till that regular season game and potentially the playoffs. So, yeah, I mean, the Warriors, they were down. Uh, they were down Wiggins and Poole and Damian Lee, no Clay Thompson too. And they just gutted it out. Uh, Steph, Steph finished with uh, 33 points, but he didn't really have the most efficient of nights. Yeah. But he was a plus 24. So exactly. you can see that impact. You can see that impact that he had on the floor. He's just drawing two on the ball. He's drawing two off the ball. He's just causing chaos and forcing defenses to pick their poison, basically
1: and
2: you have guys like gp2 gary payton ii uh you have Derry weatherspoon who is a g league guy he's one of those 10-day uh hardship contract uh signings and he he balled out you know he did his job he played defense he uh he scored in a few possessions on cuts and you also have Otto porter jr who's automatic you know uh he played like a superstar down the stretch he's like it was very, very wild to see the Warriors looking for him uh, in clutch time because he was so hot and you feed the hot hand, so and Auto Auto right. buried all these shots, so and the thing about Auto more so than his shot making is just the effort he displays on every possession. He crashes the boards, he plays defense he may not be a good one-on-one individual defender, but he's a good very good team defender and, you know I wrote an article a few a few days ago where Draymond Green and Otto as the closing four and five has been very effective for the Warriors. He's something along the lines of net rating of a seven plus seven. Their defense is if their defense is below one hundred. Uh, defensive rating is something like 98 defensive rating or something like that. So they've been very effective playing small with Draymond and Otto at the four, at the five and the four. So you have this new age, small ball. The warriors have been putting out there where it doesn't matter if they have an opposing big, uh, like a traditional seven foot big, they'll run you off the floor with their shooting and their pace and their defense. And their defense is a big part of their identity in playing small because you force misses, you can get a lot of easy transition buckets. And as we all know, the most efficient kind of offense is transition offense against a non-set defense. So they've been doing a pretty good job of forcing misses and turnovers and going to the other side of the floor and just making uh, the opposing team pay for not really having a set defense. And... That's pretty much been the theme, more so than their offense, which is pretty good. It's top four last time I checked. Their defense has been really, really good. It's been their identity, and Draymond, you gotta have him as a front runner for Defensive Player of the Year. You know, uh, he's just been amazing. And I know you wanted to talk about Steph being, you know, the MVP front runner. Runner, and I agree. Uh, I have KD a close second. So I wouldn't have any, uh, I wouldn't protest if people had KD up too, but I think for me Steph is, Steph is just doing a lot of things that the stats don't capture as usual, and he's also put even if he hasn't been as efficient uh, compared to previous years, he still has the stats to make a decent argument for being the front runner, and you combine that with his usual doing Steph stuff off the ball, and I think, you know, he's a pretty safe bet for. Uh, front runner of the of MVP
0: right you know to the Durant point just real quick I know KD has been absolutely sensational this season he's just been amazing the reason why I actually have them num- I have him number three after Steph and then after Giannis is because the Nets haven't really had a premier win yet this season you know what I mean Um, today doesn't really count I'm sorry the Lakers are a shell of themselves and Anthony Davis is clearly um, they're they're not above 500 team too so exactly yeah Yeah. so the biggest games the Nets have played this season at Milwaukee season opener they lost that they faced Miami at home a few days uh, a few days later they lose by 13 Um, they also lost to Chicago twice they got their asses beaten to them by Golden State in Brooklyn they lost to Phoenix Um, so who knows, maybe with Durant and Kyrie coming back, we'll get some more of those Premier Nets wins today, maybe catapults them, but until then, that's why I have Durant as number three. Golden State, if I told you, entering today's game against Phoenix, that Chris Paul would have 21 points and 7 of 14 shooting, DeAndre Ayton would have 18 and 8 of 10, Mikhail Bridges, 17 and 6 of 10, Cam Johnson would have... 11 points off the bench, you'd get eight from McGee. And if I told you Steph would go 10 of 27 from the field, five of 16 from three, you'd probably think maybe not the best days for the Warriors, right? But how do the Warriors win? This is how. Oder Porter Jr., eight out of 13 from the field. Kevon Looney, three out of seven. Gary Payton, the second, six out of nine. Bielica, three out of eight. Kaminga, three out of four. Wetherspoon, three out of three, too. So you get guys really contributing all over the place. And Credit to Kuminga because I felt like there were two situations in the first half where Chris Paul had the ultimate welcome-to-the-NBA moments for the Young Rook. Uh, One was the rip-through that led to the free throws uh, in the backcourt, and number two was just before halftime when Paul had Kuminga looking the other way and Paul was on his way to sinking a three-pointer. In the fourth quarter, you're not going to stop Chris Paul at all, but given his size limitations, um, you can bother the heck out of him. And Kuminga... His body type is tailor-made to really bother shorter defenders. and do, Even if they do get their buckets, they get their plays running, you have to really work for it. There are no easy baskets. And Paul, for as good as, he, for as, good as he's been, he has a history of late-game turnovers in clutch time situations in the playoffs and in the regular season. And I think that's less to do with human error and more to do with his physical limitations against bigger guards. That's why you see him struggle against Drew Holiday when Drew picks him up full court. That's why you see him need time to maneuver past Kaminga, because Kaminga has longer arms to really impede his way. The guy Phoenix really needed today was Devin Booker. Booker didn't have it. Booker's been shooting lights out from three this season, but he went one out of five from three, five of 19 from the field, and he kind of hurt his hamstring there for a little bit, did get to finish the game, but wasn't the best performances from him. I think entering this game, I kind of had Phoenix a smudge above Golden State as the best team in the NBA because I just haven't seen Golden State with Clay yet. None of us have. But after today, given the way Golden State played, given how they can plug and play guys and contribute just enough to give Steph and Draymond and eventually Clay the chance to close things out, that to me makes them the favorite right now to win the NBA championship. One team I think can give them a struggle is the Bucks because of the Bucks' length and fiscality and the Giannis factor. And that would be the matchup that would scare me the most and also because of how good Portis has been. But let's say you're Steve Kerr. By the way, when it comes to the playoffs, Steve likes limiting his our rotation to eight or nine guys, if I'm not mistaken, right? Or does he still go 10-11 deep?
2: He's learned his lesson. He's limited his rotations in the last few playoffs. Has
0: right. He, yeah. Right, so let's say, uh, God willing, the Warriors are healthy, okay? NBA Finals, and they, they, they're facing the Bucs. Because to me, those two teams are on a collision course right now to meet in the Finals. I think the Bucs are that good. Say you're Steve Kerr. You have to cut your rotation down to eight, nine guys. And you have a healthy lineup, so Clay, Poole, Wiggins. But then you have the other guys playing really well. Which nine players are you trusting against Giannis and company?
2: Well, obviously, you must have, I would say Otto Porter Jr. has to be on that short list of eight to nine. Uh, The key with Giannis, in my opinion, is just having length and the ability to switch as much as possible. Um, Not because, you know, any one of them can guard him one-on-one, but because you need someone to hold the fort while Giannis is trying to pound his way inside. And, you know, if, in a theoretical matchup against Giannis, you're going to have to form a wall against him. You're going to have to double, up, double double him in the post. Um, and also, you have to limit, like, the Warriors are a turnover-heavy team. You have to limit those turnovers because Giannis in transition is an unstoppable beast, you know. Uh, we saw that in the Phoenix series. Um, but, yeah, you got to have uh, Otto Porter there. Uh, you got to have... I would say JTA and assuming that uh, I would say that assuming that James Wiseman is back by that time, fully healthy, fully operational. I think James Wiseman can do a pretty decent job on Giannis just because he's tall and has that length. Uh, If, if I remember correctly, uh, it was an early regular season game last season when Wiseman was a rookie. He did give Giannis fits. Because simply because he was tall, so he he had that length down low. Uh, Giannis had a tough time trying to score one on one on Wiseman. So, assuming that Wiseman is there, I think you would give him some spot minutes against uh, Giannis. Um, who else am I missing? Looney definitely, because Looney is a big body. The Warriors don't really have size in the center position besides Wiseman. So you'll need all of the burly bodies that you can get. And Looney is one of them. So I agree with you that the Bucks are those one of those teams where they just have that perfect mix against the Warriors. They have length on the wings. Uh they have length on the in the guard position with Drew Holiday. And he can pretty much, you know, Steph has had some success against Drew, but Drew can definitely hang with him. And they can the Bucks have had some good experimenting experimentation dating back to last season where they didn't play as much drop coverage. They switched a lot of actions. And switching every action is kind of like the Warriors' kryptonite because they're off-ball stuff. You rely on uh, botched uh, coverages. And switching really does make up for a lot of those botched coverages. So, yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be pretty fun watch i would say uh if we get a warriors bucks finals man i don't know it's gonna be i I know it's not as it's it's not as like star-studded maybe when you look at it from a mainstream media perspective right uh but yeah i mean just the basketball the quality it's gonna be it's gonna be really great i wish i wish i will pray for warriors
0: bucks finals star power the one thing the one team in the east that i think can still give the bucks fits is the heat, and I'm not just saying that because I cover the heat, but I just <laughs> yeah. think when you look at the heat one to ten with the way guys like Gabe Vincent, Max Trues are playing right now. If that team is healthy, which I really have questions about if they can get healthy in time and build that chemistry in time, Larry entered the health and safety protocols today. But we've seen the Heat beat the Bucks twice. The season one game actually was the first game that the Bucks big three played together and they were beaten by a Jimmy and Bamness. Heat. We'll see. Because the Heat have their own issues. But I, I'd love to see a matchup between those. Uh, an epic third conclusion to that trilogy would be pretty fun. Um, and I am still I still think a Heat-Warriors matchup would be pretty interesting in the finals too with that ball movement and whatnot. But the Bucks there, I mean, the yawnness factor is just... It's like, you know, when things go wrong, you call in Godzilla to save the day, right? Uh, <laughs> okay, the Warriors... I, I think they're my favorites right now to win the West. One team that I would not say is doing so good right now in the West are the Los Angeles Lakers. I had this thought enter my mind um, watching LeBron today because LeBron was pretty much perfect today with the way he played. That late-game decision, knowing he was on fire, knowing the defense would go to him, to set up Malik Mong for a lip to tie the game was just next-level stuff. But when I was watching LeBron earlier, because Joe, I play pickup games. I, play, I played ball since grade school. You know, it was practically a religion for me growing up. Played with my friends, my classmates. I still try to play. Uh, before COVID, I was playing three to four times a week. Now that, you know, things are getting better again, I'm playing regularly again, two to three times a week. And no matter, not to compare like Barangay Filipino pickup basketball to the best basketball league in the world, right? But almost anywhere you go, it's basic. If the oldest guy in your team is required to do everything score, pass, rebound, defend, um, rotate, um, call everything out from the bench, be the coach. I'm sorry, even if he's so good, even if he's a candidate to be the GOAT like LeBron is, that's just so much of a workload to put on someone with that much mileage that many responsibilities and lebron is at the stage where the greatness we're seeing from him regularly should be reserved for spurts and moments rather than 48 minute games five straight times only to lose each of those games right and this is where for better or worse even if you say you know what russ is you know what to expect russ is making $47 million this season. He's the highest paid Laker on the team. He was brought in to bring energy for a team that looks like they have no energy. He was brought in to be the secondary playmaker to create for others. But most of his passes have been unpredictable tornadoes that might go left, might go right, might go up, might go down. And there are games when he's going to blow easy layups because he's just too frenetic and he's moving at too strong a pace. He's jumping off his left leg when his body is going right. He's jumping off right when his body is going left. And that's why you see him missing dunks, getting blocked by the rim. It's almost like, and this has always been the case with Russ, his mind is running so fast and he's so confident in his body's athletic possibilities that he sometimes forgets just to slow down and relax and the jumper is still not reliable. The free throws come and go. The defense, like there was one play where Patty Mills has hit like seven three-pointers. You rally all the way from down 23. You cut the lead to two. You lose sight of literally the best shooter in the, te- the other team that day. He gets open from the corner, makes a three-pointer. And I know the Lakers' issues run deep. I know that Anthony Davis is more important than people actually realize, especially on defense. I mean, they were playing Darren Collinson, for God's sake. But Russ, with what he's, what he's being paid and what he was brought in to do just simply has to be better. And the Lakers have a plethora of issues they have to deal with right now. But I think number one is not even consistency because Russ still gets his stats. But you just need a next level of maturity from his game to complement this disassembled this roster that's been put together. And I'm just not sure he can reach that level of maturity at this point of his career.
2: You know, Russ will be Russ at this point. You know, uh, we like everyone has given him plenty of chances uh, this season and in the past to, you know, uh, make a change uh, for the better of his team because his role on this team uh was yeah he was expected to relieve some of the playmaking pressure from lebron but by virtue of being someone who really can't shoot and i say that isn't as an, as an understatement um you know he's not he's he isn't exactly steph curry as a shooter you know so when you have him as an on-ball playmaker people are gonna duck under screens and when he's off the ball You know, whoever's defending him on the weak side, he's going to be, like, that guy is going to be an extra helper on defense because they're not worried about Russ, uh, like, making that shot. Although he's, last time I checked, he's, like, 50% on corner threes, but on low volume. But, you know, I digress. Um, He's not going to be someone defenses will worry about on the perimeter. So he has to be someone who does things on the margins he has to be setting screens for lebron on the ball he has to be setting off ball screens uh you know like someone like uh like if we're on the topic of nets lakers someone like a supercharged bruce brown you know bruce brown is one of the best like best guards that who masquerade that masquerade as a center you know he sets screens uh when when two go to the likes of a KD or Harden and Kyrie last season, uh, they, they pass the ball to Bruce Brown in the short roll. And he can make plays from that, from that position though. And he can make those shots, those floaters. And at this point of his career, Westbrook has to be that guy. He has to be the guy who just connects everything, not be the guy who tries to finish everything, if you get what I'm saying. Because he can finish stuff. But sometimes he just tries too hard to be that finisher. And you know, it speaks to his lack of self-awareness at times, where you need to you need to play a role that you're not used to. We get that. It's hard to it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. but you have to make a conscious effort to change. And um, you know, he, he's had flashes. He's had flashes of trying to change. But those old habits die hard. You know those habits kick in at the worst moments in crunch time. Uh, I think you know, uh, like closing moments of that of the game versus the Nets. He tried going up for a dunk that got front rim, and he had LeBron open wide open on the corner. And he has the ability to see that to see that opening to make that pass, but he didn't because he had that tunnel vision, and that tunnel vision was apparent ever since the KD OKC days, you know. And he was younger back then. He had room for growth as a player back then. And now he's like north of 30. You know, he's a veteran. He's a multiple-time all-star. He's a former MVP. And you just can't be making those kinds of rookie or youth mistakes at this point of your career, right? Right. And, you know, it just sucks to see Well, you know, if you're not a fan of the Lakers and you you (laughs) want to see their demise, maybe it's good for you, you know. Uh, But uh, in a general sense, you know, someone of Westbrook who could be greater than he is Right. right now, it's just a shame.
0: It just amazed me that LeBron saw years of Westbrook tape and somehow the genius that he is thought some way, somehow, this could work. I mean, I think that's the thing with with basketball player sometimes when you see someone with the same energy play with the same relentlessness that you do, it's almost like natural instinct that you think, okay, we can make this work because we have the same attitude. We have the same um, mind frame for the game only sometimes too much of something. And this goes to our Brown and Tatum point from earlier, too much of something actually hurts you more than it helps you sometimes. And you see a little bit of that with Russ and LeBron Fisdale was playing Wayne Ellington earlier. Wayne Ellington made a couple of really boneheaded mistakes too, like leaving Patty Mills open to guard DeAndre Bembry. Uh, Bembry made some shots, credit to him though. But playing him was a necessity because of his floor spacing when you have Russ together with DeBron and also with Dwight. I was seeing that earlier and I was like, wow, this is a 2009 offense. And it goes back also to... The LeBron and Wade fit never connected right away. It really took about a year and a half for them to figure out. And even when they figured it out, because both of them aren't exactly knockdown three-point shooters, you know, it was still clunky sometimes. And the Spurs took really good advantage of that in the finals when both teams spent two straight years. The difference was they were younger back then. So their sheer athleticism and explosiveness could overpower teams. They could go in quick runs and change the outcome of the game when i was watching russ and lebron there for moments during the second quarter there were parts where lebron was playing off ball moving around screening for people finding a mismatch cutting to the rim you know pushing people aside but he knows the refs aren't going to call out on him at this point in his career and russ was the facilitator and then i realized the head coach calling the shots for him right now is david Fisdale, who was an assistant under spolstra during lebron and wade's days And those those plays with Russ kind of maneuvering around, waiting for LeBron to get open in the cuts after, you know, creating havoc off the ball, it reminded me so much of those Wade LeBron plays once they figured how to play with each other, once LeBron figured out how to play more off-ball, Wade did the same, and they do that with each other. The difference is LeBron is 36 now. He's not the cyborg that he was when he was in Miami. And... Real basketball players will tell you playing off ball sometimes can be way more exhausting than playing on ball. When you're constantly moving, having to screen around, bagging bodies underneath, pushing people aside to get open, it takes a toll on you. And that's why it goes back to what I said about LeBron. The three-pointer he hit late in the fourth quarter, he was basically jumping on one leg. He used his arm to will that shot in. And I was like, man, this guy's tired. And he has been superhuman as of late, and the Lakers are in a five-game losing streak. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all turns out. I'm looking at the roster now, too. It's hard to see a savior coming back unless Anthony Davis comes back, you know, the way he was in the bubble. Because you're playing mellow because you need him at this point, if you're the Lakers, right? You're playing him because you need him. And by the way, the technical foul late in the game was just bad, even if uh, Brooklyn didn't really convert on the free throw. But then you look at the rest of the roster. Kent Bazemore, you know all about him. Trevor Ariza, Darren Collinson, Wayne Ellington. Jalen Horton Tucker, I think they wanted to be that guy on ball who could be a creator for like two-minute stretches only. It hasn't really worked out at all. And really, Stanley Johnson was picked up off the street and playing already. The guy I think that could really help them is Kendrick Nunn because he can play a little both off ball, shoot the three ball, not great, but okay and kind of like get in the middle middle area of the court and hit some floaters, hit some mid-range pull-ups. So, But he's been out of action. We don't really know when he's coming back. So Joe, if you're the Lakers, you're Pelinka, you're about a month and a half from the trade deadline, right? Do you wait for this team to get healthy and see how they can really work once you have a consistent lineup going on? Or are you thinking, I have to make a move before this this turns into another first-round exit?
2: Well, you first of all, it's the Lakers and the Lakers fans are always gonna want to have a move because the expectations are quite high. You know, trade this guy, trade that guy, trade for this guy. Um, I lean towards the the former. You would wait till people get healthy. The problem, with, the problem with that though, is when? When will exactly be that iteration, that fully healthy iteration? When will that happen? Because AD is out for what? I think like a month or something like that, or two months. And uh, you're going to have some of the guys back from COVID protocols. uh, But there's this thing where the Lakers haven't really meshed yet. There's this, because teams have this period, especially when you have new pieces where you need to have some adjust, you need to have an adjustment period. You need to have uh, chemistry settled and uh, they don't have that. And it's, almost like almost we're approaching almost the halfway mark of the season we're around what five or six games away like 10 five to 10 games away from that like i'm not i'm not sure how many but yeah halfway part halfway point of the season and you still don't have an identity on offense and defense uh you know palinka may not have a choice but to uh to act make some moves even on the margins because uh, Lakers fans are really de- are a really demanding bunch, their standards are high, and I don't blame them because you have a team with LeBron James who, you know, you expect to win a championship. It's a championship or bust every season. So I think Polinka, like I'm not really sure what move they can do, but Polinka might have to do something, just even if just for the illusion of trying to improve the roster. I think he may be forced to do something soon as the trade deadline approaches.
0: Absolutely. Even if it's just a move in the margins, right? Bring in an extra shooter, get one of those buyout guys that the Lakers always get. Here's the bad news for them. I'm going to give you the good news for them and the bad news for them. They have played 34 games. They're two games below 500, right? They have played 20 games at home already. They've only played 14 games on the road where they are six and eight. They face the Warriors three more times. They face the Jazz a few more times. They face Dallas a few more times. They still have an East road trip they have to go to. They, they face the Heat. They face um, Brooklyn, Philadelphia. It's not going to get, you know, a lot easier <laughs> moving forward. They have some tough games. They have some Phoenix. Still, they still have to face the Suns too. They have to face the Cavs one more time. And yeah, the schedule gets tougher and it seems like they don't have answers right now. The good news for them is Memphis right now is number four in the West. Memphis is 19 and 14. The Lakers are three and a half games behind the Grizzlies. Okay. And that four seed gets you home court advantage. I don't think they're catching Golden State. I don't think they're catching Phoenix. I don't think they're catching the Utah Jazz. I think those three will end up in the top three some way or order. Um, now, if you're the Lakers who you're thinking Clippers are 17, 15, but Paul George has got injured a month. They're going to, you figure they're going to drop because Kawhi's not coming back anytime soon too. Dallas is 15 and 16. Luka just entered the health and safety protocols. He doesn't look like he's in top shape. You know, he doesn't look like he has the best health right now too. Denver still waiting on Murray, still waiting on Michael Porter Jr. The Timberwolves, a bunch of guys just enter the protocols, they probably will drop a bit. San Antonio is next. They're 13 and 18. And Portland also has its own issues. Sacramento always has issues. So if you're the Lakers, you're probably thinking, yes, the schedule gets tougher, but we do have Anthony Davis coming back. We might be able to make a move or two. And the fourth seed there is within grass. I think right now Memphis is better than the Lakers, but in a seven-game series, I'd still take the Lakers over the Grizzlies. And you can figure that, you know, the championship team in 2020 for the Lakers, before the season ended, that was when they started getting their mojo, right? They beat the Bucs and the Clippers one weekend. They started that season. So the difference is they had vets, vets who knew how to play defense that game, uh, that season. They don't have that this year. So maybe that's the move that uh, Pelinka needs to make. A not-so-old vet who's relatively young, maybe early 30s, can play both sides of the floor because God knows they need it. Okay, Joe, before I let you go here, I'm going to mention um, random teams and random stats. And in one sentence, just give me your quick thoughts about them, okay? Okay, Cleveland Cavaliers, highest net rating in the East, plus 5.4, 19, and 13, seed in the East. The Cavs can finish in the top four of the East, yes or no? Yes. Interesting. Oh, do do okay. I expound
2: on that? Do I expound just a yes or no?
0: You can expound a little bit,
2: yeah. Oh. I don't know. They've been playing good... Team basketball, and I, I really love that their uh, quirky three three big lineup of uh, Markin and Mobley and uh, Allen, and I really really love Darius Garland. So yeah. I think they
0: can finish fourth. They're well, they're capable of that. Steph gave his stamp of approval for Garland, that was a pretty telling sign. Um, the Utah Jazz historic offense, twenty two and nine. We have seen this from the Jazz before, though. They play well in the regular season only to flame out in the playoffs because Gobert is usually played out of position. The Jazz, better this year, better shot of making the conference finals or same old story? I
2: would say better shot. I just don't know how much of a better shot. Like, I would say if their chances last year were around, let's say around 60%, I would say this year would be around 65 to 70%. But there's still also that chance where they'll just, you know, fizzle out because of the problems with defending at the point of attack, which really exposed, I don't want to say exposed Gobert, but it kind of systematically exposed what their, what the the lack of their defense, uh, their point of attack defense in terms of, you know, trying to keep their men in front and putting all of the defensive load on Gobert. So I would say they're better this year, marginally better. I just don't know how much that will improve their chances of making the West Finals.
0: Right. I have them better than any team in the West outside of Phoenix and Golden State. And I think those two teams, though, could give them some serious issues come playoff time, uh, especially with that def- defensive scheme. OK, um, the Chicago Bulls, 19 and 10, second in the East. Good start so far. Do you take the Bulls as a legit threat to win their conference? I would
2: say they can make it as far as the Eastern Conference Finals. I don't know if they can win the Eastern Conference Finals because in a playoff series against the likes of the Nets or the Bucks, I just think the Nets and the Bucks have more weapons at their disposal. Um, you know, I, I like DeMar DeRozan. I like... Uh, I like... Uh, Lonzo, I like uh, Levine. I just don't think that they have the requisite experience at the highest stage to uh, overcome the likes of the Nets with KD, with potentially Kyrie, with Harden, and the Bucs with Giannis and Drew and Middleton. So they can reach the East Finals.
0: I just have a hard time seeing them winning it. I agree with that. Um, If I'm the if I'm the Bulls though, I'd like I'd like to go up against a team like the Bucks. weirdly enough, because of how the Bucks like to play defense and Brook Lopez is in there. Um, I would not want to face the Heat if I'm the Bulls, because the Heat have a few wing defenders. And I think I'd like to go up against Brooklyn though from the Bulls, because I think if it's going to be a scoring matchup, you know, which team can put more points in the board, especially without Kyrie. I, I might yeah, I think I it depends on be- Kyrie being there, yeah. Exactly. Or not, yeah. Some way, somehow, it always depends on Kyrie, right? Uh, I agree with you, though. I think Cleveland could be the team that um, upsets a, a higher seed. Like, if I'm the Heat, I'm trying to avoid Cleveland at absolutely all costs possible. That's a terrible matchup for them. Speaking of potential upsets, right now, the lower-seeded teams in the West, we're going go to go 5-10 to to include a play-in. Clippers, Dallas, Denver, Lakers, Minnesota, San Antonio which from those teams are most likely... We're going to take the Lakers out of this, okay? Because we know what the Lakers are. We know the LeBron factor. So from the other teams we mentioned for the, from that Western Conference side, which team is most likely to make a first-round upset?
2: I would say the, the Nuggets, because mostly if Jokic is playing, they always have a chance to win right. against a higher seed. Uh but you know out of all those teams you mentioned it's a tough it's tough for any of them to make a uh, a dent in the first round assuming that you know some some or all of their key players are still going to be out at that right. point in the playoffs but the nuggets you know jokic to me is someone who can take it like he's a floor raiser uh he automatically improves the quality of anyone he's on the floor with you know, and just because of how he's been playing this year, you know, if it wasn't for the team record, he'd probably be front runner for MVP again. Uh, assuming he was like, the Nuggets were around the one, two or three seed. But yeah, I mean, Jokic, as long as he's on the floor, he'll always have a chance to take a few wins or maybe a series.
0: Absolutely. Awesome. Okay, so guys... You can follow Joe Verai's work. Uh, follow him on Twitter, Joe Verai NBA. He writes for Rappler Sports. He also writes for Golden, uh, the Warrior State of Mind, Golden State's SB Nation page. Uh, some good breakdowns on Twitter, too. Joe, tell everyone where they can follow your work and contact you.
2: Uh, yes, it's Twitter at Joe Verai NBA. Uh, read my work on SB Nation. And
0: uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Fantastic. Joe, thank you for your time, man. And I'll catch you soon sometime again during this regular season, I'm sure. All right. See you, man. Take take it easy, buddy.